Well, first of all, uh, welcome. Um, it's uh, an honour and a privilege to chair the event tonight. Um, what we're going to do is I'm going to um, sort of say one or two words of welcome, then I'm going to pass over to my colleague um, Andreas Gestrich from the German Historical Institute, who will also say a few words, then I'll introduce our speaker, and then the preliminaries are over and you get into the main course, uh, which is uh, Professor Roder's lecture. Uh, so, perhaps if I uh, hand over straight away now to, to you, Professor Gestrich, then I'll do the introductions. Good evening. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you all to our fourth uh, inaugural lecture within the framework of the Gerda Henkel Visiting Professorship Program, which the LSE runs jointly with the German Historical Institute. And I would just like to take the opportunity this evening to, first of all, thank the Gerda Henkel Stiftung who is represented by Dr. Angela Kuhn this evening uh, here for having supported this program uh, for four years now. And this has been, from our both, uh, from the perspective of both institutes, uh, for us a, a great success. It's input uh, into the LSE. Uh, uh, the the uh, visiting professor has uh, not a year off, but he has to teach a course in the master's program at the LSE and otherwise he resides at the uh, German Historical Institute and is supposed to write a book and uh, organize a conference. So it's, uh, not in, it's not holidays, but it's a relaxed atmosphere where one can actually, uh, I hope, get a lot done. And this is really due to the very gracious support of the Gerda Hinkel Stiftung. And I, of course, hope that this will going to continue the program, uh, which we will we'll see later on this month. So, and it's a great pleasure for me here to welcome Andreas Roder. We have a, we share a long uh, task uh, uh, together. We're both at the University of Stuttgart and uh, so it's very nice to, Andreas, to have you here and to see you here again uh, for a long period of time. A year is quite, quite a bit, 12 months. So, excellent. Well, thank you for coming, and um, all of you, and I hand over to Piers. Okay. Yeah? Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Andreas. Uh, and let me, first of all, echo the... Um, what was already said about thanking both the German Historical Institute, who are our sort of co-hosts of both this event and of Professor Roder's year in London, and still more importantly, the Gerda Henkel Stifter, who pay for it. So uh, it's a, 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 a collaboration which I think has genuinely brought a great deal. I, the, often with visiting professorships, the visiting professor can be a slightly detached uh, person in the department that they are visiting. I certainly found that in my own time we've spent at Princeton. But the idea of having somebody actually teaching in the department, I think, plugs that person into the department in a way that is relatively original, but I think very, very valuable for us as a department, and I hope also for the visiting professors themselves, although that's clearly something I leave for them to judge. Okay, well, tonight uh, it's a huge pleasure to uh, welcome Professor Roder and to introduce his introductory lecture. Um, I felt, as always when I go through um, the CVs of other academics, but it must be said particularly German academics, sort of slightly... Well, I couldn't quite work out whether I was annoyed or scared by how broad the list of writings were. Uh, Professor Roder has written on Stresemann, but he's also written on 19th century British conservatives... He's written on post-war Germany, 
and uh, also a, a more detailed study of German reunification. Indeed, we're, we will be collaborating on a project revisiting German reunification uh, in the months ahead, which I look forward to greatly. Um, this desire, this remarkable breadth is, in a sense, continued with the basic project that you are here to do, um, and uh, which you'll probably be talking about, you may mention tonight, which is a, uh, uh, entitled The History of the Present Age, which is uh, a very uh, ambitious undertaking. But tonight's lecture continues the, 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 the theme of breadth by uh, taking an ambitiously large span of German history and looking, as the title in front of you shows, from, uh, at the German question on the European stage from uh, Kaiser Wilhelm to Chancellor Merkel, particularly appropriate perhaps to be delivered on the day that Merkel was in town to, to, to see David Cameron. So uh, with, that's probably quite enough of me, so without further ado, I'll hand you straight over to tonight's speaker, uh, Professor Andreas Reder. Thanks to you, Piers. Thanks to you, Andreas, for the very warm and friendly welcome. Thanks to the German Historical Institute. Thanks to the LSE. Thanks to the Gerda Henkel Foundation for giving me the extraordinary privilege staying here for one year, which just has begun, and there are still 11 months left. I'm counting every day which is left. And thanks to you all for coming and attending tonight and sharing with me some deliberations I would like to present on the German question on the European stage. I am sitting down. This was towering Helmut Kohl's answer to Margaret Thatcher's snub. Sit down, you big German, you are making everyone very nervous. <laughs> this at least how this cartoon in the Montreal Gazette in 1990 saw it. The old fears, the old animosities, and these were indeed Thatcher's. Notorious is the excursus in her memoirs. Since the unification of Germany under Bismarck, she writes there, Germany has veered unpredictably between aggression and self-doubt. A reunited Germany is simply too big and powerful to be just another player within Europe. Thatcher's dictum, Germany is simply too big and too powerful, strikingly resembles German historian Ludwig de Hio's assertion of Germany's half-hegemonial position in post 1871 Europe, published shortly after the Second World War. Too weak to really dominate the continent, but too strong to simply be subordinate. In Germany, this manner of speaking has become widely obsolete. Germans are convinced that they have been merged into Europe. You might know the catchphrase, Anybody designating himself as a European already has revealed himself as a German. <laughs> this again resembles Thatcher's assertions about German politics in the 1980s and their desire to, as she wrote, merge their national identity in a wider Euro European one. In effect, 
The Germans, she writes, because they are nervous of governing themselves, want to establish a European system in which no nation will govern itself. Such a system could only be unstable in the long term and because of Germany's size and preponderance is bound to be lopsided. Obsession with a European Germany risks producing a German Europe. So far, Thatcher. However, Chancellor Merkel needed 7,000 security police, not today in London, but when she visited Greece in October, and demonstrators accosted her with swastikas and Hitlergruß, a public reception worse than Kaiser Wilhelm's, even without sending gunships to Agadir, just demanding conditions for economic help. German hegemony as a result of European integration? This would be the exact opposite of the German experience from the age of world wars, that it is following interest regardless of international requirements, that it is the lack of international integration which leads into German isolation. German isolation, one German trauma of its 20th century history. This obvious predicament leads to the underlying question which shall serve as the first guiding idea of this talk, carving out patterns and traditions of the German half-hegemony in Europe, accompanied by a second question, the question for the political handling of this scenario, particularly by the Germans themselves. Tonight I would like to present the German question on the European stage in three acts, not as an encyclopedic overview, but as a selection of specific aspects. First, a couple of short observations from Kaiser Wilhelm to Chancellor Kohl in terms of national interests and international integration, a story that, regardless of German petition in the 1980s, was increasingly told as the completed story of Germany's final Western integration. But when German reunification burst into history, things were to change fundamentally, and the German question in the post-Cold War Europe came up again. Thus, the second act will present a bit more detailed empirical analysis of the connection between German reunification and European integration, trying to give an answer to the controversial question, was the European Monetary Union, was the Euro, the price Germany had to pay for reunification. Thatcher's view was quite the opposite. She did not understand the introduction of the Euro as a concession in order to include Germany into Europe, but she saw it, at least in effect, as a means of creating a German Europe. This leads then to the final but comparatively brief act following the question of the half-hegemony and its handling from 1990 to the present Euro crisis and to Angela Merkel, telling the story of the supposed German fall and rise again, and finally trying to figure out political courses of action. Before we now turn to the Kaiserreich, two preliminary remarks regarding national interests. When I repeatedly refer to this category, 
this does not mean that national interests should be anything pre-existent or given. Rather, national interests are due to definition and negotiation, to political and cultural change. Even so, we can observe remarkable continuities beyond short-term political changes in what are regarded and pursued as respective national interests. A preponderance of mercantilist-based social politics, national self-assertion and containment of Germany in French politics, for example, and in West Germany, a rather consistent interest in international security through Western integration and in political as well as economic stability, avoiding further inflation, the other German trauma besides isolation. This leads to the second remark, post-1945 West German national interests, as I use the term, do not refer to the national question in the narrower sense of a German reunification, but to the basic guidelines of the Federal Republic's politics already mentioned, while we can probably ignore the GDR when, we, when pursuing the question of German dominance in Europe. On 9th of February, 1871, Benjamin Disraeli told the House of Commons with regard to the Franco-Prussian War, this war represents the German Revolution, a greater political event than the French Revolution of the last century. The balance of power has entirely been destroyed. Destroyed by three wars generating unified German Empire in the middle of Europe, holding a half-hegemony in terms of military as well as political strength. Yet what Bismarck, the white revolutionary and destroyer of the European order of 1815, did after 1871 was try to rebuild and to stabilize the balance of power in Europe, even at the price of relinquishing further gains of power at a time when standstill was identified as setback. Bismarck's idea, according to the Kissinger dictation of 1877, his idea was the idea not of acquiring territories, even if he did so in some cases, but of a political constellation, Bismarck wrote, in which all powers apart from France are in need of German support and therefore reluctant to build coalitions against Germany. In doing so, Bismarck was driven by the awareness of unequal standards in Europe after the founding of the Kaiserreich, unequal standards not in any legal terms, but in terms of international politics. The European powers would not permit Germany to gain any more power, but considered that they themselves were entitled to do so. This is the first general finding, and it was this awareness of unequal perceptions and different standards of what was considered legitimate that the Wilhelmine Weltpolitik abandoned, when the Kaiserreich, moreover, became the technological and economic powerhouse within Europe in late 19th century. When Under Secretary of State Bernhard von Bülow claimed a German place in the sun too, he thought he was stressing the two. 
But what Germans considered as a matter of equal rights appeared as aspirations for hegemony to others based in a, I quote, deeply rooted feeling that Germany has by the strength and purity of her national purpose, the high standard of competency and the perspicuous honesty of her administration, the successful pursuit of every branch of public and scientific activity and the elevated character of her philosophy, art and ethics established for herself the right to assert the primacy of German national ideas. It was not Antoni Samaras who wrote this in 2012, but Er Krau in 1907. Thus, what we observe is not only German vigor, but at the same time, obviously deep-rooted patterns of perception and suspicion of German hegemonic aspirations. I don't want to get deeper now into the thrilling trends in recent research on pre-1914 international politics, which stress much more the contribution of others, not only of Germany. However, what will remain as a historical factor, I think, is Wilhelm Mein's Germany's handling of this situation, of its self-perceived inalienable rights, regardless of others' perspectives and perceptions, a lack of awareness of its own strengths, international compatibility, this is the second finding, which helped, which helped, lead, helped lead Germany into its much deplored isolation. <coughs> if this led into war, it did not disappear with it. The art of expressing gratitude is one which Germans do not practice. British ambassador Lord Davenon wrote in his diary in November 1925, and he continued, directly they are granted anything. They not only ask for more, but criticize what has been given as inadequate satisfaction to their unquestionable rights. Gustav Stresemann himself confirmed that this was no mere misperception. My impression is, Stresemann said, that the Germans have too little or don't even have any appreciation over, for what the French call the nice touch. And this damages us heavily in foreign politics. We can't pursue world politics with the notion nobody shall join these Muppets. Thus, this is Stresemann's specific line in interwar German foreign politics. In the beginning of a German tradition in the 20th century, third general observation, the attempt to combine national interest, in this case the revision of the Versailles Treaty, with international rapprochement, a feeling for the other's perspectives, and particularly for French needs. <coughs> Given the conditions of interwar Germany, there was no chance to enforce this sustainably due to a prevailing culture of unconditionality. In a nutshell, one day, the young, later uh, famous conductor, Wilhelm Furtwängler, was out with his teacher, the archaeologist Ludwig Kurzius, on a walking tour. When Kurzius told Furtwängler that he estimated the devoutness of Bach's Mass in B minor, higher than that of Beethoven's Missa Solemnis. If this is true, 
Furtwängler answered, we can't walk together any longer. <laughs> so regarding the relationship of national politics and international integration, as well as the question of hegemony, the case of National Socialist Germany is so obvious, and since we had Sönke Neitzel's impressive talk last week, that there is no real need to mention the war tonight. After 1945, a completely different raison d'etre of West German foreign politics was established, which political scientists have called gaining sovereignty by abandoning sovereignty. However, given that the Allies had assumed supreme authority with respect to Germany, as the Berlin Declaration of the 5th of June 1945 claimed, at first there was little to abandon and much to regain. Thus, this pattern was at the core of the European community of coal and steel founded in 1951. The Europeanization, at least in the Europe of six, of basic resources of power, in this case of heavy industry, allowed emancipation among Western nations and founded a tradition of German self-inclusion accompanied by a deep-seated self-distrust in the Germans as well as in the traditional German nation-state and accompanied by subordinating the national interest of national unity. The same is true of the German accession to NATO and this specific combination of West German interests and international integration worked at least until the Guadeloupe summit in 1979, as Christina Spohr recently has convincingly shown, when Helmut Schmidt, as Chancellor of non-nuclear West Germany, appeared as an equal member of a Western Directorate of Four. However, with increasing German emancipation and with its increasing economic power, at least its relative strength, international integration started to get into conflict with its national interests. This became obvious in the late 80s, on the one hand by means of security politics. West German government had subordinated national unity to the Western guarantee of security since the 50s, and Helmut Kohl in particular had shown strong loyalty to NATO in the missile crisis of the early 80s. But when the superpowers abandoned the intermediate range nuclear forces under the INF Treaty in 1987, leaving just short range nuclear forces in Europe, which NATO, NATO pressed to modernize, Germans began to resist, one of the arguments being the shorter the range, the deader the Germans. A nascent conflict was finally superseded by the European revolutions of 1989, but it had started to indicate and to pose new questions about the German position within the Western alliance and the German role in Europe. This applies particularly to another serious problem, the strength of German economy. German economy performed by far the strongest amongst European economies in the 80s, including Lawson booming England. While Germany managed 
to create economic prosperity without comparable social collateral damage, the Bundesbank fought the risk of inflation by applying high interest rates, thus putting pressure on other European economies. Kohl realized that German economic success revealed a formidable reverse, as he said in 1989, serious, very serious psychological dislocations. François Mitterrand's advisor Jacques Attali put it even more clearly. German power relies on its economy, Attali wrote, and the D-Mark is Germany's nuclear bomb. Thus, the founding of the European Monetary Union became a pivotal moment in the history of Germany and Europe. This now leads us to the second question and the second act. Did Germany sacrifice its weapon of mass destruction for the sake of German reunification as a precondition for gaining French approval? This, at least, has often been maintained and is still a widely accepted opinion. Let's use this as a starting point for a bit more detailed investigation into the relation between German reunification and the introduction of the European Monetary Union, both of which were accomplished between 1988 and 1992. If there was a connection between German reunification and the European Monetary Union, it was the Strasbourg Summit in December 1989, when Mitterrand and the members of the European Council maintained the Germans' right to self-determination and reunification, whereas Kohl agreed to start the Intergovernmental Conference for the European Monetary Union. We will return to that, but we first need to go back, since Strasbourg was not the beginning of the Monetary Union. Its origins were pre-1989, and they resided, as we have seen, in the power of the German economy and the strength of the Deutschmark, vis-à-vis the three times devaluated franc in the 80s. And it resided in the corresponding French aspirations to get their hands on the German atomic bomb. This was at the same time part of a broader process, the relaunch of West European integration from the mid-80s onwards, overcoming the so-called Eurosclerosis of the late 70s and evolving a new European order as the bipolar world order crumbled. This process increasingly saw West Germany and France as the driving forces, along with Jacques Delors' European Commission. The European Monetary Union figured as a key element in this process, even if, for contemporaries, it was overshadowed by the East European revolutions. The first of four major steps was taken when the European Council established a committee under the guidance of Jacques Delors at the Hannover Summit in June 1988. The trick was to include the main critics the central bank presidents, particularly the fundamentally skeptical president of the German Bundesbank. 
what Thatcher and others hoped would destroy the idea of a common currency, in the end ensnared the critics. This first step towards European monetary union thus reveals a basic European experience. A process once set up develops path-dependent dynamics. At least, steps once taken are not easily reversed. The second step, then, was the adoption of the committee's report by the European Council in Madrid in late June 1989. The report suggested that the monetary union be introduced in three stages, and it was agreed to start the first one, providing free capital transfer in July 1990. However, the crucial second and third stages, the establishment of a central bank and of fixed exchange rates, were assigned to an intergovernmental conference, and when this conference should take place, was left open to discussion and decision. This decision to start the intergovernmental conference, the third major step towards EMU, thus became the crucial issue in Franco-German relations, which were deteriorating badly in the late year of 1989. The German position was to do preparatory work first and to take the decision on the intergovernmental conference one year later. The German government thus gave priority to stability politics, and at the same time, it wanted to establish a political union, even if its final aim and shape was not entirely clear. Mitterrand regarded these German propositions as mere delaying tactics, suspecting that the Germans were tiptoeing away from the monetary union. As Kohl's advisor bitterlich observed, EMU was the preeminent objective for the remaining years of Mitterrand's presidency. Thus, Mitterrand, with a much more strategic approach than Kohl and the Germans, pressed for a decision that the intergovernmental conference should definitely start within one year. Mitterrand gave priority to establishing the institutions of the monetary union, while he slowed down the initiatives towards a political union. Margaret Thatcher, by the way, basically rejected a monetary as well as a political union, thereby by staying offside the European integration push towards a post-Cold War European order. So far, all this has been told without mentioning the question of German reunification. The German question came into play after the fall of the war. It gained momentum in late November 1989 and intertwined with the preparation for the European Council in Strasbourg on the 8th of December. Mitterrand considered it as perfidious that Kohl not only sent him a draft timetable on 27th of November, disregarding French ideas by suggesting that preparatory work should start in Strasbourg and the decision on the intergovernmental conference should be taken not before one year later. Mitterrand was even more upset when Kohl scored a coup 
one day later by, by publicly announcing his ten points leading to German reunification and thereby setting the German question on the international agenda without consulting Paris or any power, any other power in advance. The French president decided to teach German foreign minister Hans-Dietrich Genscher a lesson. The notes of their encounter on the 30th of November emphasize Mitterrand's insistent repetitions, and this time the notorious Sphinx left no doubt about the message. If Western European integration stops, Mitterrand told Genscher, it will decline. If it declines, the European conditions will face fundamental changes and new and privileged alliances will arise. It would even be possible to fall back <coughs> into the mindscape of 1913. Still, Kohl's advisor in the Chancellery recommended that he stick to the German position of stability politics. But on the 5th of December, Kohl weakened. He agreed that the Strasbourg Council should take the decision to start the intergovernmental conference within one year. This decision then taken in Strasbourg marks the closest connection between the German reunification and European Monetary Union. Kohl, driven by Genscher, clearly was the dominant German politician in European integration politics in the late 80s and in the 90s, a momentous process that was conducted by a very small circle of political and administrative elites anyway. In Strasbourg, Kohl agreed to proceed with the third of four major steps towards European Monetary Union faster and further than he would have done without pressures in the wake of his 10 points program and due to impending German reunification. Thus, the first assertion is German reunification did not bring about the European Monetary Union, but German reunification accelerated it and brought it closer to the French concept by subordinating a political union to the monetary union and by giving priority to establishing institutions instead of safeguarding stability first. However, this is not the whole story, since there is an underlying consensus on original German principles which shaped the Maastricht Compromise, which then marked the fourth major step. The acceptance, the European acceptance of German so-called stability politics as a quid pro quo for German acceptance of the European Monetary Union. The consensus of an, on an independent central bank with stability of prices as its primary objective, and finally, the Euro Stability Pact of 1979, which sought to perpetuate obligatory budgetary discipline for all members of the European Monetary Union. The Strasbourg decision was a political decision. Three days later, Kuhl told the American Foreign Secretary James Baker what could he do more than to support the establishment of an economic and monetary union? 
He, he's talking about himself, Kohl, took this decision, as he said, against German interests. But it is politically important since Germany needs friends. Even if Kohl might have addressed this ad persona, in order to stress his goodwill in view of the exhilarating events in Germany and his heavily criticized pressing ahead with the ten points, even though this is a noteworthy remark. At least it reveals that, as Kohl himself was aware, the decision for the monetary union was taken against serious economic objections in terms of stability, as they were articulated by the German Bundesbank or by economic <coughs> experts referring to the unfulfilled requirements of an optimal currency area. However, since even Nobel Prize-honored economists tend to claim as eternal truth what turns out to be entirely inapplicable the next day, they make it easy for politicians to despise economists' advice. The crucial problem lay in enduring political and cultural differences between France and Germany, even more between the northern and southern countries of the European Monetary Union, which went beyond mere prejudice. And even if we might recall Edmund Burke's qualification of prejudice as wisdom without reflection. However, analysis of respective discourses and argumentation patterns reveals indeed fundamental differences. Where German politics rely on the liability of treaties, even if the Germans themselves, Wotan-like, broke them in 2004, French politicians give primacy to politics. Where the Germans bank on monetary stability, the French give primacy to social politics. And where the German trauma is inflation, the French trauma is the Germans. Those differences lie at the core of how the present Euro debt crisis is dealt with, and Kohl was aware of them at the outset. But in the end, and mocking Thatcher, he nonchalantly put them aside, as revealed by the report to his party board just recently published. The phrase, I quote Kohl, that the Italians conceive the rules, the French shape them, and the Germans obey them, he said in 1995, this is part of the European charm. Optimistic about a Europe on the basis of subsidiarity, thereby underestimating the powerful undercurrent of integration, Thatcher described Kohl's attitude as follows. Kohl seemed willing to subordinate German interests to French guidance since this reassured Germany's neighbors. So far Thatcher. But this is not so far away from the German Foreign Minister Guido Westerwelle, who stated a couple of weeks ago, German and European interests go hand in hand. This equaling of German and European interests in fact means, as we have seen, giving priority to European integration and at least partially subordinating national interests. This leads to my second assertion with reunification at the latest. 
For German political elites, European integration has taken on a life of its own. This has been accompanied and confirmed by narratives and communication strategies, by stigmatizing critics as Eurosceptics and ruling them out of the political discourse in the 90s, or by claiming, Tina, there is no alternative. The alternative to the monetary union, Kohl said in 1990, again towards his party board, the alternative to the monetary union, I quote him, is back to Kaiser Wilhelm, and that doesn't help us. This was one way of using history as a political argument, and here this talk links up with David Stevenson's formidable lecture two weeks ago. Even more effective in this regard was the immunizing narrative of peace. The story of European self-civilization after 1945, to quote Tony Judd, as a perpetual legacy of integration. Let's listen to Kohl to his party board for a last time. Building the European House of building the European House, irreversibly incorporating its by far most powerful country, Germany. This is, Kohl said, the question of war and peace in the 21st century. This is what German social philosopher Hans Joas has just recently called the sacralization of European integration. It marks a fundamental reversal of Wilhelmine's lack of awareness of others. The blatant contrast with widespread international perceptions of German politics now lead us to some concluding remarks to sum up in the shorter third part. German history since 1871 reveals a recurring predominance of its economic and material potential in Europe, and this against all setbacks, two lost world wars, the expulsion, of, and the expulsion and extermination of its Jewish elites, the loss of one-third of its territory, the twofold Europeanization of its principal power resources, and finally the alleged overload by the reconstruction of the new lender after 1990. The aftermath of reunification witnessed manifold and widespread analysis of heavily over-industrialized Germany's inevitable decline. This talk is less than 10 years old. For a couple of years now, however, particularly since the onset of the financial crisis, the allegedly sick man of Europe has arisen like a phoenix from the ashes. Germany is up again and talk of the German model is back as are suspicions of German-European politics camouflaging national interests and in reality promoting German supremacy. Now, is this an appropriate view? In my opinion, this not only overestimates German capacities for strategy, but it misses the core with regard to motives as well as effects. The recent German recovery is primarily the result of reforms carried out by the social, social democratic and green Schröder government to improve German productivity and competitiveness in accordance with the Maastricht consensus and at the same time 
reinforcing exactly those problems of economic disparities that should have been ruled out by the monetary union. The euro has not diffused the German atom bomb, perhaps even enhanced it. Obviously, the German problem in Europe remains a structural problem of German economic power, irrespective of EU and European monetary union. If this is true, the German question is still a matter to be dealt with. The German Kaiserreich provides historical experience that, different from a hegemonic power, inward-looking unawareness of foreign perceptions and unequal standards, as well as unawareness of others' needs and international demands, lead into isolation. Post-1945, West Germany witnessed the benefits of combining its own interests with international integration, even if, in cases of conflict, precedence had to be given to international requirements. When this was stretched to its limits in the 80s, and particularly after German reunification, Kohl, Genscher, and the German political elites, fearing any suspicion of hegemonic aspirations and resolved to avoid any new 1913 experience, finally reinforced the German propensity to prioritize the needs of international, primarily European integration, with the price of even discussing national interests other than international integration or strategic demands of leadership in Germany. This is particularly true for the German, for the European Monetary Union. It was no precondition for German reunification, but reunification accelerated the introduction of the euro without sustainably safeguarding monetary stability. A couple of weeks ago, Hans-Dietrich Genscher confessed that the mission of German, in other words, his or his generation's foreign politics, was to be, I quote him, the prerequisite of her neighbor's fortune, des Glückes Unterpfand seiner Nachbarn zu sein, as he said. Widespread evidence suggests that this is still a prevalent and genuine attitude within German political elites. But how then is the discrepancy between autonomized German self-integration on the one hand and, a massive, and these massive foreign suspicions of Germany's aspirations to hegemony and ruthless dominance to be explained? It seems to reveal to still it seems to reveal still unequal standards in perception, intertwined with still unresolved structural problems of German. Germany's half-hegemonic material strength and her political role in Germany. Consequently, this corresponds to diametrically opposite demands on Germany, ranging from unrestricted solidarity with the Mediterranean countries on the one hand to the appeal that it take more and vigorous leadership on the other. So, what to be done? And does history give us, give us any orientation? The first option is to accept hegemony and consequently 
exert stability politics as the prerequisite for economic success. This would mean refusing further European transfer payments, urging structural reforms and further budgetary cuts in the Mediterranean countries even more forcefully, and finally envisaging either their exclusion from the monetary union or a German exit. There is some reason to believe that those politics would be appropriate in economic terms, if this is at all possible. At the same time, it would blow apart the Maastricht consensus, reverse central elements of European integration politics of the last more than two decades, thus basically undermining the foundation of the European Union and the post-Cold War order in Europe generally. Maybe I'm lacking imagination. But for me, at least, it is hardly conceivable that such a policy of consistently prioritizing national interests could end up in anything other than German isolation, Germany's diplomatic nightmare, and if not war, but incalculable confrontation in Europe. If that is to be ruled out, an alternative lies in the Mediterranean solution of more European solidarity, as it is claimed. Increased and increasingly unconditional transfer payments drawing the bazooka as Hollande and Barroso, Samaras and Monti, Juncker and wide sections of the German political elites demand. Perhaps I'm lacking imagination again, but I think it hardly conceivable that such solidly united politics, contrary to all patterns of German economic success, would end up in anything other than economic devastation and inflation, the other German nightmare, reversing the Maastricht consensus as well and ultimately smashing the European treaties, transferring power to institutions never legitimized, and, by the way, slaughtering the dairy cow. An obvious predicament without satisfactory solutions, as is history. But if there is any lesson from history, it is, or it may be, the experience that the combination of national interests and international integration has been the most effective way of handling the German problem in Europe. Given the already confessed lack of imagination, sailing between Scylla and Charybdis may be the safest course to be adopted, a safe trip not to be underestimated in history, following a direction of both upholding stability politics and accepting leadership as well as keeping international integration and awareness of others' perceptive perspectives and needs, constantly trying to find a balance and getting through. Since I announced to stretch the German question from Kaiser Wilhelm to Angela Merkel, what now about her? A typically rationalist in style and less rooted in an ideological pro-European habit, basically this seems to be her direction, even if she doesn't really explain it, and even if her politics are wavering and highly changeable. A German observer called it the Clint Eastwood principle, riding into town and looking to see what happens. <laughs> At least, German politics hardly seem to follow a really strategic approach thinking in contingencies and alternatives. After initially considering the exit of failed states from the European Monetary Union, 
she shifted to if the euro fails, Europe fails, when the Rubicon was crossed in May 2010. Resolved to keep EMU, even including Greece and Cyprus, she struggles to implement safeguards of stability politics. She may hope to sit it out and overcome the crisis by implementing structural reforms in the euro countries while protecting them with European means, avoiding a race to the bottom and just gaining time. This is not to be underestimated. There is more than one historical situation when mere time and timing was or would have been crucial. You never know what happens next. Just look at Germany's recent recovery against all contemporary predictions, say in 2005 or so. And if recent indications of a recreation should prove to be lasting, these politics will be praised as the rescue of Europe. If not, particularly if agreed reforms remain undone and the crisis returns, the same politics may turn out to be a mere sliding down the slippery slope, dismantling one self-erected obstacle after another, and ending up in being pulled into a European transfer union nobody has ever agreed to. However, this leads us to the verge of forecast, and prediction is, as is well known, very difficult, especially if it is about the future. This resembles the insight of a great German philosopher, Sepp Herberger, who knew that football is thrilling since you never know how it will end with one exception, perhaps, discovered by the famous British historian Gary Lineker. Soccer is a game for 22 people that run around, and in the end, Germany always wins. <laughs> Even that had recently, has recently been put into perspective. So we must leave the performance of the fourth act of the German question on the European stage to a lecture by a future Gerda Henkel visiting professor. Thank you very much for your attention. about half an hour uh, for questions um, so um, I, I will sort of encourage you to think of um, several, let me start the proceedings though by asking one myself um, can I suggest perhaps that there's one further link between German unification and if not EMU as a policy the current situation and therefore the development of EMU uh, and this is something you kind of hinted at but didn't really develop, and perhaps I can push you a bit further on. And that is the link between the unenforceability of the, uh, st uh, the stability pact within Europe and Germany's own financial 
troubles and trials and tribulations as a result of unification in the late 1990s and early 2000s. In other words, Germany, who saw themselves throughout the Maastricht negotiations as the um, sort of the apostle of financial rectitude and budgetary discipline, temporarily found themselves in the late 1990s and early 2000s at precisely that moment when the European rules were being devised and were first having to be implemented in a position where actually it too was facing serious budgetary difficulties. And in a sense that drove a major, made a major hole in the whole Maastricht bargain and post-Maastricht bargain on which EMU was meant to rest. Uh, so perhaps if you can tackle that, and then we'll open the floor to other questions. Yeah, this is the question, um, the question of the history of the German stability politics, which even if you have a closer look to the negotiations of, in Maastricht, uh, somewhat, is somewhat wavering. So the real apostle of German uh, stability politics was German finance minister Gerhard Schultenberg. And there is one, it, but he was uh, uh, Minister of Finance no longer than 1989, when he was, uh, when he, when he was uh, replaced by Theo Weigel, who was much closer to Helmut Kohl. So this was so somewhat the first breach, uh, the, the, the first break um, uh, into, in, within the, uh, the, German, the, the really uh, uh, the consistent German stability politics founded Uh, by the finance ministry as well as the Bundesbank. Uh, so Weigel was much closer to Kohl uh, and much more willing to, uh, to, to, give, uh, to, to compromise, uh, since uh, Genscher was even more. Uh, so this was the first thing, but even Weigel was, struck, but even Weigel was struggling Uh, for the Stability Pact in 1996, and, uh, which was implemented in 1997. And the Germans would have liked uh, the Stability Pact uh, to be, even to be tougher uh, than it turned out to be uh, and was uh, resolved in 1997. So even Weigel, uh, until the end, uh, adhered to, to this kind of stability politics. Um, And even then, the German situation was, was worsening since uh, the, uh, the, the economic problems in, in Germany uh, mounted in the late 90s. They got better uh, around 2000 and worsened again in 2003 and 2004 uh, at the end of the Schröder government. So um, at least uh, to say it that way, uh, German Christian democratic politicians point at the social democrats. Uh, and there might be a, a, a part of the answer might indeed lie in the uh, political orientation, meaning that social democrats uh, or the Schröder government might, might have been more prepared um, to, uh, to break the stability pact than a Christian liberal government would have been done. So um, what, you, what you suggest might be the one part of it, the, German, the, the, the severe economic difficulties of Germany on the one hand, but a kind of uh, political orientation uh, in Germany, I think, is the other part of, this, of the answer. Thank you. Okay, I can see lots, lots of hands. We, we have a roving microphone, so if, uh, if you're picked, can you please wait until the microphone gets to you before asking your question? Yes, the gentleman on the, on the right there. Um, we hear a very great deal uh, in recent times about the need for closer European political and fiscal union as a solution to the dog's breakfast we now have in the 
European Monetary Zone. Could you tell, tell us what the Germans mean by um, uh, political and, your, and, and fiscal union? Do they really mean that, or do they just mean a tighter regime to make sure the southern Europeans keep within their budgets and do what they're told? Um, yes, let's collect, collect, let's collect two or three first. Uh, yes, uh, just behind there. Uh, yes. Um, there is uh, an increasing desire uh, by Britain and its people to withdraw from the European Union and the associated European Court of Human Rights but a reluctance of the government to allow us to do this. Do you think that the underlying reason is fear of a German military resurgence? Finish. What resurgence? The military resurgence. Okay, and uh, yes, in, in, in the middle here, can you, the microphone may struggle to get across, but uh, can you pass it over? And then... uh, in spite of what you say, uh, I still don't understand how a new currency could be set up without a single uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy for Europe. Uh, and nor, I mean, the only safeguard that was created when the euro was set up uh, was the stability pact, yep. which Germany and France then fairly soon proceeded to breach. Short, why was this basic um, precondition for a stable currency not understood and implemented absolutely seriously? I still don't understand that. Okay, well, let's, well, there'll be more, another round of questions, but we need to give our speaker a chance to respond. Yes, it's, these are very interesting questions requiring answers. Uh, just to begin with, the question of the British fears, I can't really speak for the British government. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> a few of us can. Uh, but uh, I, it's not my impression that these fears are as strong as they have been uh, during the Thatcher government. Uh, and if you have a look to, uh, to the political positions at the moment, they are, they are not far, uh, far away from another. So uh, if you have just a look to this, what uh, for Merkel and David Cameron are talking about today, the question of the European budget, the German and, uh, the, German and uh, the British positions uh, originally are quite close. Uh, but it's a question. The question is much more that of the general orientation, uh, much more detached uh, British orientation. Um, Cameron saying less Europe is something at least up to the moment completely uh, unthinkable, unperceivable to say in Germany. Uh, you never know what happens, but uh, but uh, up to now, now at least political elites in Germany are fiercely resolved to stick to the euro, to stick to the European uh, Union, and the only critics. Uh, being a really silly, um, a silly uh, coalition in Germany from the really socialist left party on the one hand uh, and the just much more right-wing Peter Gaulweiler from the Bavarian uh, Christian Social Party. Um, this is bringing up really um, interesting combinations in Germany. But the, question, the, the, the first and the third question, I think, do belong together since uh, they hint to the same problem. What is meant by political union? And this is a very, very good question. Uh, I think it hints to a widespread lack of real, uh, of real uh, concepts of Europe. 
to start with Helmut Kohl, when he talked, uh, spoke about the um, political union, it was not really clear what he meant in 1989 and 1990. Uh, it was more or less uh, more giving more rights to the European Parliament. Uh, perhaps a, a, a president of the European Commission elected by the European Parliament or by the European populations, strengthening democratic rights and uh, implementing more efficacy of the European institutions. That more or less was the idea, of course, a political union never really completely clear. Uh, the French refused that uh, in order not to transfer any kind of uh, state sovereignty to Europe on the one hand. On the other hand, what the French favored was the idea of a gouvernement économique. So this is uh, uh, very, very much nearer to this what is discussed at the European finance minister within the European monetary zone now. So you never know, and this is, uh, this is the, the, so the question I think is part of the answer. Uh, you never know what is meant by European uh, 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 political union. Is it rights of the parliament? Is it a strengthening of the commission on the one hand? Or is it just implementing the fiscal pact? Uh, implementing the fiscal pact as was resolved by the stability pact in 1979. Uh, I think, on the other hand, this unclearity, unclearness, is part of the European way of finding consensus. Uh, since you need this kind of vagueness and unclearness uh, just, in, uh, just to find any kind of, uh, of compromise between positions which are uh, drifting apart. Um, this is on the one hand part of the European success story, on the other hand uh, part of the European misery story, since uh, you find compromises which are uh, formula compromises uh, in the end. So it's, it's not really clear what's meant by political union. Uh, it's not really clear how to implement then the monetary union and now getting to your question. Uh, since um, on the one hand um, uh, many participants of the monetary union were not uh, prepared to hand over um, uh, state sovereignty to any kind of, 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 uh, of institutionalized monetary union. Um, so the idea then was uh, to agree on the fiscal pact. And the idea behind it is, uh, as I said, is just to be explained with this cultural difference uh, of Germans establishing rules and trusting that rules are obeyed. This is a specific German tradition. Most of the time it works, not every time, but, uh, but most of the time. But the idea was we do these regulations and this will work. Um, that there might be anybody to accept regulations and to do something different uh, was, uh, was not comprised in the German view of the thing. The German then broke it. This is, this is uh, the, the real irony of it, uh, but, uh, but it's not the, it's not the regular, uh, regular case, and at least it, this, I think, really was not envisaged in, um, uh, in 1997 by, by, by Weigel and the Kohl government. I think it, this would have been pretty uh, imperceivable for, for, for the Kohl government in the end, since they really struggled hard in, in order uh, to bring Germany to the stability pact. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I think what you, what you both asked is to be explained uh, by, uh, the, by the severe uh, preordination of political reasons. The euro was a political project, uh, and at one point or another, coal, at least with reunification, was resolved to ignore, ignore economics uh, and, to, and, to, and to become, say, ideologically um, resolved that the euro must be a success. 
Okay, um, I th- is, let's move the mics over to this side of the room for a moment. So as we've only got the one, you'll need to be patient. Yes, uh, here in the uh, sort of fifth row. Uh, this, yeah. Yes, I just wanted to take up really your last remark. I mean, it seems to me one element in the explanation of extraordinary risk-taking is this was a period when coal in particular was dominant and had taken enormous risks which had paid off with unification and he was in a mood for the great throw you know, throwing the dice Mm -hmm. and it went on then with the expansion of the European Union eastwards which was another enormous degree of risk taking in other words it seems to me we had an extraordinary situation where you had a Chancellor who had not been dominant before emerging as dominant with some very sort of clear ideas of a very simple, even simplistic kind, and able to push them through. It seems to me the real loser in this is Mitterrand, because he got what he wanted, but it didn't work. I mean, we're back with your fundamental problem of the strength of the German economy, now because it's extraordinarily efficient and productive, and that creates really the problem. And you can no longer devalue your other currencies in order to, to make that good. So it seems to me that the story is really of a careless idealism on Cole's part yeah. and a cunning on Mitterrand's part, because after all, not all European countries wanted it. Thatcher, in, in a sense, quite rightly, said, no, you know, this isn't going to benefit us. Why should we have monetary union? And it was open to Mitterrand, it seems to me, to see the same thing, that he was so fixed by the idea of breaking the, the Deutsche Bank that he basically trapped himself and a lot of other countries Okay, uh, a few rows back on the left there. Uh, Well, thank you very much, uh, first of all, for the um, outstanding presentation. I couldn't agree more, actually. Um, I have two questions, one related to the French role in 2010 and in how far it resembled the French role in the um, late 1980s in terms of pushing Germany towards a certain... Um, French position and the second question would be you also um, hinted at the um, um, narrative in Germany that German interests are equal to European interests but I, I mean I regard it really as a narrative by the political elite towards the um, you know, population um, in how far do you think this narrative which also links back to German history etc is um, actually sustainable in the long run thank you Okay, and one last question of this round. Um, okay, yes, here, down, down in front. I will do this side of the room in a moment with one roving mic. Um, it makes sense to concentrate geographically. Could I just ask you, looking forward uh, on Europe, uh, when I look to see that the idea, or rather the concept of Europe, is to try and create employment, when I think the current figures are somewhere between 16 and 20 million unemployed across Europe and rising, and we have the case of the Irish who are having to subject and uh, present their budget to the European Parliament before they can present it to their own people. There seems to be a constant fudging of the rules at the higher level and completely ignoring the wishes of, of the normal people, of the average person in Europe. Do you think this is a good democracy and where will it lead us to? Okay, plenty to be getting on with that. Yeah. Um start with the last uh, with the last one 
I meant to have realized kind of a bias in your question. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, this again tends, uh, um, um, attaches to the first questions, uh, questions we had, uh, since there, um, the establishment of new institutions uh, is, is pretty unclear. And if you just have a look uh, to this German situation, uh, which in terms of the budgetary uh, implications, uh, we have a judgment by the federal court uh, um, re regarding the Lisbon Treaty in 2009, uh, which told the German government uh, the limits of uh, the limits uh, of European integration. And uh, there was uh, a very clear cut stop gap, which was erected by the by the uh, federal court, um, in terms of fiscal politics. So the the problem is the fiscal pact is um, is pretty problematic in constitutional terms. Uh, for example, in Germany, and of course the this is one the one question of, uh, of a constitutional question. The other question is the question of uh, democracy, and indeed uh, we are heading towards the question. It, it is again the question for the political union. Now we are establishing. Um, uh, tighter regulations for the for the fiscal pact on the one hand, which is cut, uh, part of uh, of uh, of uh, institution building um, on the one hand, without on the other hand increasing any kind of uh, democratic regulation or democratic control within within Europe. Uh, and indeed, what we see is uh, an, another disc another discrepancy between the European institutions, which is due to the uh, which is due to a development uh, which doesn't derive from any founding act of the European uh, of, of the European Union, uh, but from constantly uh, changing and developing uh, already existing institutions, adding others, uh, and so building uh, one part after another without uh, w without designing um, a concise construction of a European uh, constitution. Um, um, Including that uh, the Maastricht Treaty and the, uh, and the, uh, the Monetary Union um, is basically changed uh, just uh, within the within the process. So, um, just uh, just uh, would, would would like to uh, to underline what what you say that that these problems uh, uh, are obvious. Um, so, you now the question for reunification and the narratives. I think uh, this uh, belongs together, since uh, I just would like to, uh, to support what you said, uh, and I just would add my, uh, another, uh, another thought myself, since what you said uh, in, in reunification could be added by the question of the German monetary union, which is quite interesting. I just left this out uh, in my talk. Since if you have a look to the positions in advance uh, of the Maastricht Treaty, there was the French so-called monetarist position, which is uh, pretty irritating because it's a complete difference from what is called monetarist in, uh, in terms of economic science. But the French position uh, to do, um, to do uh, the, uh, the institutions first and uh, to look for coherence then. This is the monetarist position and the econ uh, economist position, uh, the German position, uh, was uh, at the, on the hard currency countries' position was to look for economic coherence first and to build the institutions then. If you have now, uh, uh, and then with EMU, the French position more or less was adopted, apart from the, the, the fiscal, uh, the criteria, uh, the, the, the stability criteria. So if you have a look to the German Monetary Union in 1990, it was completely the other way around uh, from that what the Germans demanded in Europe. 
the German monetary union between uh, East and West Germany uh, from July 1990 meant to um, was a, a very a prominently e uh, monetarist economic union building the economic union right away and looking for co economic coherence thereafter. Um, the economic experts as well as the Bundesbank told, told Kuhl that this never would work. And this might be another part of Kuhl's self-confidence to have overcome these contradictions uh, and, these, uh, um, uh, and these positions as well uh, in uh, creating a monetary union and might have empowered him uh, even more for uh, his uh, European politics. Now the questions for the, for the narratives, because I think it's important, this, this kind of, of boosting self-confidence of coal is the one thing, uh, and the implementation of narratives in the 80s, uh, of narratives uh, which weren't questioned at all in Germany, um, uh, I think are pretty important uh, in terms of giving self-confidence to politicians, taking a huge risk they never could, uh, could oversee. So uh, this was a kind of immunizing strategy. And the, the first of these narratives was, as I told you, the, uh, the narrative of peace, the European peace story, uh, the success story of European self-civilization uh, finding peace between the European nations. This is still lasting, and it has been added in the last years uh, by another narrative, uh, the narrative that uh, of, of the sufficiently great uh, um, uh, area of, uh, of a monetary union. Uh, this narrative says that uh, in, um, in the global, in the global, uh, competition. Com in the global competition, uh, that in the, uh, in the uh, global competition of the uh, of the 21st century, uh, uh, <coughs> sufficiently uh, large areas are required, and that Europe just can survive by building a sufficiently large area. This reminds me uh, uh, at the uh, at the um, uh, theories of Weltreichslehre in the uh, early 19th century, which was the same uh, the same way of thinking about things. We, today we mock at that, but I think it uh, should make us make us a bit more humble in uh, looking at these narratives uh, which are uh, working right now. So the question you asked whether these question uh, these narratives will uh, be sustainable. Um, what is to be observed is uh, that they have started to lose credibility. In Germany, people have started to question it, which hasn't been the, 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 the uh, which hasn't been the case five or ten years ago. So, uh, just uh, if I'm asked for the future, you know, I'm a historian, and what I said about forecast is still valid. Um, but I think what we have to envisage as historians is the experience uh, that things change and that they change in an unexpected way. So uh, I wouldn't uh, dare a forecast about that, but I, wouldn't, uh, but I wouldn't maintain that these narratives will last just because they have lasted for a couple of decades. Do you think we're traveling in the right direction? This is a political question that I would like to, to leave for the wine afterwards. Okay, um, at least... Probably time for a couple more questions, possibly three. Uh, yes, the gentleman on the right here. Thank you. I want to bring it back to a properly historic uh, discussion. And you, you did draw this parallel with the Kaiserreich, 
Um, you will remember, I'm sure, Max Weber's famous critique, uh, notably in, in, his, uh, in his lecture, Politik als Beruf, of what had gone wrong with the Kaiserreich, uh, how Bismarck had uh, deprived the German people, really, of political maturity, uh, and uh, a kind of unquestioned nationalism had, had taken over. What he wanted to create was a genuine democracy. Well, of course, we know what happened in the Weimar Republic. You know, it was a democracy without Democrats, and, and it collapsed. But um, it's very interesting. You quoted Kohl uh, saying it's either uh, monetary union or back to Kaiser Wilhelm again. Now, is, I want to sort of throw out uh, a rather bold suggestion to you, which is that Kohl's role in the last uh, few decades is actually quite comparable to Bismarck's. He did reunify Germany. He did then create a European system within which uh, that unified Germany uh, could thrive. Um, but, of course, as we can now see, uh, his successors have been unable uh, to make this work in the way he envisaged. And I'm, I want to ask you whether there is, in fact, a sort of Weberian critique to be made of Kohl, uh, that uh, you know, he did not, by, by indoctrinating the people with this European ideology, which you, know, you might call a Gesinnungsethik rather than a Verantwortungsethik, um, uh, he deprived the German people of the ability to see how it would look from outside, you know, how Mediterranean countries would see Germany's present policy, how the British would see it, and so on. Okay, Dr. Dorsual. I would also like to ask a historical question. Um, in terms of your postulation on the German question and how it kind of found an answer, you seem to suggest that um, it is self-binding, which is something that perhaps grew out of the process post-45, where it was imposed, and then Kohl kind of took it over into the 1990s and conducted self-binding, um, in, in, in institutional self-binding, uh, while uh, conducting, say, national interest in the wider European framework. And also a learning curve in terms of that it's important for Germans who are in the center of the continent to understand their neighbors' perceptions and fears and to engage with that in a constructive kind of way. How do you relate your interpretation or your postulation of that to uh, the interpretation by Winkler who says, well, it's all a long-term trajectory of der lange Weg nach Westen, that somehow is a sort of teleological move towards universal Western ideas and um, Germany sort of was on that trajectory as in, in it, and in that sense, uh, this just will continue. Whereas you seem to suggest that, of course, there may have been a learning curve from what happened in the semi-sovereign post-45 Germany and was taken over into the sovereign United Germany, but nevertheless, we cannot be certain where things may go. Okay, um, one final question right up at the top there. Sorry, Milada. <laughs> Too many stairs in this lecture. Thank you for your very thoughtful and thought-provoking uh, uh, analysis. Mike, I wondered if you could give us a historical comparative perspective on the G German leadership and the citizens' patience to uh, be friendly with its neighbors. And, and then it's a two-part question. At what cost? When will it be too much? And when I say friendly, I mean the sense that it's it, it, from a um, for some perspective, it feels as though French banks, other banks, other countries were essentially riding on the coattails of, as you said, the Deutsche Mark and the strength of the German economy. 
Okay. Yeah, again, these, uh, these things belong together, so the, the parallel you draw between Bismarck and Kohl is, uh, uh, is really fascinating since um, we wouldn't have thought so, uh, at least Germans wouldn't have thought so before uh, in terms of Bismarck on the one hand uh, being the preserver or the re-preserver of European stability and of uh, peace on the one hand, but on the other hand of the suppressor of um, suppressor of uh, a democratic um, of a democratic uh, development within Germany, so you could equal Bismarck to Kohl in so far as uh, even uh, as the European integration too hasn't produced kind of democracy, but uh, in terms of motives it would be strikingly different since uh, Kohl would have uh, liked to, to strengthen uh, European democratic uh, elements. Um, I think I would question, the question whether the parallel would mean that the successors have uh, lost uh, the heritage or, 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 uh, or, dis, uh, or destroyed the, the heritage since uh, uh, in, uh, in, in the monetary union, obviously, and this is what, what we see now much clearer than before, obviously the flaws were within the, flaws were within the system of 1990 or 1992 within the Maastricht Treaty. We already to, uh, spoke about that, that... Uh, there are the in initial uh, uh, flaws within the system. So uh, this, in the end, uh, uh, I, s I think makes a difference. But um, the, uh, the, the, I think the parallel is absolutely correct in the willingness of both to preserve any kind of, uh, to preserve or to re-erect uh, a, a kind of uh, stability within a fragile context uh, within Europe. Um, but in both cases, you see, and even in, Bis in Bismarck's case, it's not only the problem of his successors, but uh, this Bismarckian system became precarious in the 1880s as well. So he had to deal with uh, the, uh, the interior, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the systematic problems of his uh, system um, as well. Um, so the question is, is there the tradition or the parallel between Bismarck and Kohl or the, the long way to the West, as uh, Christina answered, uh, asked. I don't think that the, in the end there is a, a contradiction between uh, Kohl's self-awareness and self-understanding on the one hand and this long path to the West as, is, uh, um, uh, as, it, as it was uh, maintained by um, by, uh, by, by Heinrich August Winkler. I think there is a common denominator between that, and this is the awareness of Kohl and his generation, and Heinrich August Winkler belongs to it, of this German, uh, German uh, West German success story, the idea of now reaching uh, to the West, uh, of having... Um, uh, of uh, having uh, realized uh, this, this success story of security, stability, and prosperity uh, in 40 years of uh, the German Federal Republic. This um, got to, uh, to the top in 1989. This again was the question of, of the boosting call. Uh, West German self-confidence was on its top level in 1989 when West Germany celebrated the first 40th anniversary of the Federal Republic of Germany. Still, the problem was the unsolved question of national unity, which faded in the 80s. But when the Federal Republic celebrated its 40th birthday in, in 1989, um, 
at the, in a period of really booming economy, which was the background for German reunification as well as the, for, for the Maastricht Treaty, or at least the preparations for Maastricht, um, this uh, is the background for these great transformations uh, and German politicians ready for the transformation of German reunification as well as European, uh, as European unification. So I think these transformations in Europe on the German side were, were driven by this kind of boosting uh, German self-confidence out of the, uh, the self-perceived West German success story. I think this drove... Uh, this drove German politics, and part of it was then this self-asserted history of the European peace story uh, in combination with what Walter Hallstein, uh, I think Hallstein was uh, uh, the one uh, who brought up the metaphor with the European bicycle having to be moved, moved on and on, uh, uh, which must not stop, um, or the idea of, as it, I think, was uh, the, the formula of the of the uh, uh, of the treaties of Rome of the ever closer European Union? This is uh, all these things. The, the peace narrative, the ever closer union. Um, this is the kind of self-understanding of the Germans in 1989, uh, which drove uh, 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 the background of these uh, transformations from the uh, German point of view. And now, the gentleman uh, in the last but one row. I, I have to admit, I forgot your question. <laughs> the, idea, the idea of uh, the patience, a comparison of the patience of both German leadership and potentially citizens to, to continue to essentially drive the economic growth in Europe and, and, and whether that patience is will wane and at what cost. You mean to just recent, recent patience? German patience is extraordinarily strong. If you if you believe if you believe uh, if you believe in the surveys, uh, there is very much trust uh, uh, in Angela Merkel. Uh, Germans don't feel any kind of crisis in terms of uh, of uh, monetary of material shortcomings in Germany at the moment. German economy is booming at the moment, and the Germans uh, are pretty patient uh, at the moment. Nobody knows what happens uh, if the economic situation deteriorates in Germany, but I think in this case not only the German elites but uh, the German population uh, is resolved uh, to, uh, to experience no, uh, no, no new 1930. Okay. Great. Well, I th uh, judging by the number of hands, we could go on and on, but uh, I suspect it's, a, it's 7 o'clock and it's therefore time to call matters to a halt here. Um, there is, I believe, a reception up in the senior dining room at the top of the building opposite, so um, uh, those of you wishing to join us there, uh, please do make your way in that direction. But I think before we do that, we should uh, give Professor Roda a well-earned round of applause.